Welcome to Adding Fuel to the Hire, a podcast for hiring managers and job seekers across all types of dealerships. With over 20 years collective recruitment experience, Rowan, Tony and Phil draw upon their knowledge to help you navigate through the recruitment and job hunt process. For more information, head to our website, addingfueltothehire.com. Hello and welcome to episode five of Adding Fuel to the Hire. Uh, I'm your host today, Rowan, and with me today is Tony Flynn. G'day, Tony. Hello, Rowan. So today I thought it might be good to have a bit of a chat around the parts department and uh, what's it like recruiting in the parts department, what are the challenges and where employers can make some changes or maybe uh, see some opportunities to improve their success. So why don't you start, uh, give give us a bit of a rundown of... uh, I guess you've sort of been our man in parts, just uh, organically. Um, how have you found it? Yeah, re- really good. I think uh, probably my favourite part of recruiting the parts is the phone accessibility, uh, particularly <laughs> compared to that of the service department. This is true. Um, they're generally speaking very connected to their phones, um, you know, well-spoken, um, really easy to communicate with. You know, communication is a large part of their job. So in, in that sense, it's a really easy department to recruit for in that way. But I think parts as a whole has probably seen the biggest shift out of any department in dealerships over the last few years. Um, I think I alluded to it. I can't remember which episode it was, but it was an earlier episode um, about the fact that the parts department traditionally was always seen as a means to an end. It didn't really bring in much money to a business, uh, to a dealership, or at least it wasn't seen to. Um, whereas now I think a lot of businesses have shifted that focus and they're now starting to realize, well, hold on, our parts department can be its its own fully fledged department that generates a lot of revenue for the company. Um, and therefore we should reinvest more money into it. Um, so I think it, it's a really interesting department to take a look at in the sense of how that change has occurred and, you know, the implications of that increasing pay rates, product training, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably the, the best way to sum up the parts department is just the change that it's seen over the last few years. And what about um, salaries and, and what does that look like for the parts department from what you've seen, um, both metro-based roles and also regionally? Good question um, and definitely not something that you can just answer by throwing a blanket over it all. Um, I think a, a really good example of where the parts department is out and it kind of exemplifies how some employers are stuck in the old ways versus some now are starting to get with the program, I suppose, for the want of a better word. I've seen the same regional town competing dealers within 500 metres of each other will pay 50K for a parts interpreter and then the same town, just different brand, will pay 65. So I think the disparity between the high payers and the low payers are far greater in the parts department than than most others. I think specifically if you compare it to say mechanics or technicians, I think generally speaking, most people are well aware of pay rates in the service department and they understand what they have to pay. Where I think there's a lot of employers out there really aren't up to date with the with the parts department. So yes, you can get lucky at 50K, even 55K. Um, you know, you might snag a local that's just looking to move for whatever reason, but you're not going to ever convince someone to relocate to your region unless they're specifically already looking to go to that location. Um, I, I think as a starting point, regionally, 60K is where I'm, I'd say at least 80% of my placements have now been at that 60K mark for the last 12 months um, regionally. And then Metro, generally 65 is the starting point. Um, obviously, it differs between Sydney and Melbourne versus, say, Brisbane or Adelaide. 
Um, I think Sydney is a good example. It's really 75, 70 to 75, yeah. um, depending obviously the industry. But generally speaking, if you're not above 70, you're going to really struggle. Um, and, and Melbourne's quite similar, but I think outside of the two majors, it's 65 is your starting point. Um, beyond that, anything below 65 there or, or 60 regionally, and you're just playing the luck game. Yeah. And it's not really a game you want to play. <laughs> and what about uh, incentives or uh, vehicles or anything like that? Have you seen much of that lately? So I think as a manager, parts manager, vehicle is now a must. Um, I've had, a, let's say, out of 20 roles that I've picked up over the last few years with parts managers, I would say 17, 18 of them have had vehicles. And those two or three that didn't, you price yourself out of a large portion of the market because once people have had a company vehicle, and this goes for any role, they don't want to give that up yeah. to take a new job. Yeah, that's right. Because not only are you taking the risk of moving employers, but you're suddenly having to cough up, you know, if you want a dual cab ute, 40, 50K, um, you know, which is a, a huge risk for a job that you don't know if it's going to work out or not. So company vehicles definitely a must for parts managers. Um, obviously it's, it's never really seen for parts interpreters and that's fine. It's definitely not expected. Um, but yeah, it's a must for parts managers, but incentives, commissions, it's a really difficult one because I can definitely see, and I think most people can see how it is aligned to a sales type role in the sense of low base, good commissions with parts. But if I had a dollar for every time I had a candidate tell me that, you know, they had this salary package, but the incentives were so unrealistic they could never reach their KPIs, and so they never made any money off it. Yeah, if I had a dollar for that, I'd have – I wouldn't be rich, but I'd have a lot of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think as a general rule, the market has lost faith in that, um, particularly in the dealership industry. Yep. I think and, – and as I suppose the cost of living goes up and you look at Sydney or Melbourne, a great example, you know, house prices are going through the roof – Base rates are everything. Um, I've been through it in the past with with a base salary and a comms type structure when you apply for housing, um, applying for a bank loan, I mean. Um, you know, banks will only look at your base rate. So a lot of candidates are very anal about that now because if they have plans to get into a price, um, you know, a house market, say, in Sydney where it's going to cost them 800 grand for a pretty entry-level home, well, they need a good base to show the bank that they need to pay for it. So, um, yeah, if you've got the money in the budget and you're happy to pay those incentives – um, I would definitely look at reviewing your base salary and increasing them because I think as a general rule, most of the good employers are starting to move towards a purely base system. Um, obviously, you can still have KPIs tied into that and they still have to reach them. Um, otherwise, they're not going to be a successful employee. But, yeah, I think the mentality in the parts department of having a low base and having comms is well and truly dead. Yeah. I think there's far too many employers out there now that aren't doing it, which just make it impossible to compete. And what are some of the challenges that you've seen uh, in the parts department and, and recruiting or even for employers out there looking to hire into the parts department, what are some of the challenges you've seen? I think other than the, I, I just alluded to that with the base and commission structure, that's definitely one, um, particularly with commissions. Um, that is a huge challenge. But in a weird way, I think the parts department's biggest challenge is also its biggest opportunity or biggest benefit Um as an employer, and that's just the incestuous nature of it. Parts departments, probably more so than any other departments, they're all talking to each other, whether it's, you know, I, I bought parts off 
this company or um, this aftermarket supplier or whatever. Everyone seems to know everyone. Um, Not a day goes by where I don't talk to a candidate for a parts role um, and they go, oh, who's the parts manager there? And then I tell them and they go, oh, yeah, so-and-so I worked with him at blah, 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 or, you know, I order off them daily. Yeah. yeah. Happens all the time. Um, So that obviously presents a lot of opportunities because – you can, you know, think of people easily for a role. If it comes up, you go, oh, what about that guy that you know bought from us the last two years? He seems to be really well-spoken, blah, blah, blah. But it's also your biggest challenge because it means there's a lot of fear, I think, within parts interpreters or even parts managers jumping ship. Yes. Because, yeah. you know, if I do this, is my colleague going to be, like, are they going to catch wind and they're going to tell that? Or, you know, if I'm going to a competitor, are they going to, when they're next ordering parts, are they going to mention something? So, yeah. Um, I think I see it all the time recruiting specifically for parts interpreters, the amount of times candidates apply for jobs um, through ads that I might have posted after the the client has posted ads and they purely say, oh, I just didn't want to apply directly with them. I was too scared. Yeah. Um, so I think that's definitely the, the biggest challenge from a parts perspective is just how interconnected it is. Yes. Um, and then I suppose the other one is um, – the old brand and dealership experience. Um, obviously, everyone loves having dealership experience, um, but there's a shortage as companies get bigger uh, and more companies start acquiring other dealerships. I think the pool of people with dealership experience outside of your network starts to decrease. Um, so a lot of the time, yeah, finding people within a really small town, for example, that has this particular farm machinery experience um, can be really difficult because in most regional towns, there might be a case dealer um, or, or let's say a CNH dealer, a John Deere dealer, and an Agco dealer. Yeah. And unless you're going to convince someone to jump ship, which you know then goes back to the challenge we said before about how in- interconnected it all is, um, it, it's going to be really struggle, a, re- a real big struggle to find someone with that experience. Um, and have you seen many dealers look at uh, bringing in automotive parts interpreters into uh, the industries that we? work in predominantly, which is the heavy vehicles? It's increasing. Um, and my advice to any heavy um, dealerships out there would be to look at that. Um, I think from my perspective, a lot of my recruitment success has come from candidates with really good attitudes from the automotive industry. And they've stuck it out for seven, eight years, um, but they might've hit the ceiling in terms of their own incapacity with yes. parts interpreting. Um, and so they want to move into the commercial side of things or the heavy equipment side of things. I think that is where you can have a lot of success because ultimately you want someone with a good attitude. Oh, definitely. Um, I think from, if I look back at all the candidates that haven't worked out, there's a very, very, very small percentage of them that didn't work out because they didn't have the product knowledge or they didn't have a really specific skill set. It's usually the attitude. And you might get somebody as well who's got an understanding of the fundament, fundamentals of how a parts department works, uh, but, you know, they they – sort of, I don't know, maybe had enough of automotive or they want to try something different. And you know, a lot of the commercial uh, equipment dealers pay better than automotive as well. So, you know, there's opportunity there for them to take that base knowledge and, and grow into something else. Exactly. And it's the old saying I hear probably oh, at least once a day, you know, parts is parts. Um, I know that's not generally the case, but most candidates see it that way. Um, you know, oh, I've, I've done trucks, I've done cars. How hard can earth moving be? And for sure, when they first start, there's going to be a lot of product knowledge. But yeah. at, at least at that point when they do start, they already understand a DMS. They understand what a parts department is trying to achieve, the restraints, um, 
you know, you look at it from a commercial perspective, one of the biggest challenges of parts development is understanding that the vehicle or the product has to be on the road or, or in the yard as much as possible. Um, so understanding that mentality is really important. And I think once you've got a candidate that understands that, well, that's already half the battle won. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, definitely recommend shifting people from other industries, having a look at them. Um, the automotive one's a really good one because generally speaking, you can offer more than what, uh, it, financially speaking, more than what the automotive industry can can offer. Um, a lot of the times, but yeah, just being open-minded and even just looking for people, um, if it is an entry level type of parts role, you know, people that have worked at Repco or, or super cheap or somewhere like that. Um, yeah. you know, they obviously don't understand the dealership side of it, but they might have a mechanical now about them and, and really understand what it is that parts people do. Plus they understand warehousing and dispatch and all those sort of parts catalog type, you know, part, part of the role, which is an important part of it as well. Yeah, Exactly. So what other, uh, there must be some other opportunities there that uh, employers can sort of seize on or maybe even some tips that we can give them to uh, increase the chances of finding some people for their parts roles. What um, what else would you suggest? Obviously, you know, that uh, looking outside of the industry is one, but what else have we got? Once again, it kind of ties back to the whole looking outside the box mentality, but looking outside your department, um, I would probably hazard a guess and say, at least 20% of parts interpreters are probably ex-mechanics that have looked to get off the tools for whatever reason. They had an injury or they just realized that they couldn't do this for the next 40 years. And so they wanted to apply their mechanical knowledge and not throw it away um, in a less strenuous department. Um, and obviously service advising is a really um, obvious career move, but parts is, is just as likely for a lot of these people. So you know, go if you have a parts role that pops up, go to your service department, ask them, does anyone want to move into a parts role? Um, I think from a cultural point of view, there's probably nothing more damaging than if you've got a technician that's kind of getting over it, they're, they're, you know, their back's starting to get sore, they're starting to think, oh, I don't know if I can do this for the next 20 years. You know, and then suddenly without even being spoken to, there's a new parts interpreter sitting at the front desk. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just ask them because ultimately they know your product. Yeah. They know your client base. Yes, they're going to you know, have a couple of weeks where they need to get trained up on your DMS. Um, you know, they might know their way around your DMS, but not from a parts perspective. Um, but, yeah, that, that's definitely the, the first way to start, I think, is just finding people within your dealership um, that know your systems. Um, but then I think the other important thing is, and it kind of ties back into market rates, if you are going to go look for someone, let's say you've, you've gone to your service department, you've looked around, there's no one internally that wants to do this role. Um, all right, well, now we have to go to market. What do we do? Don't go to market unless you know the market rates. It's it's the same as we spoke about, I think, in episode four about candidates um, or episode six, sorry, um, which will be coming up, um, where you're looking for the right job and you have to understand why you're looking for the right job. Well, it's the same from an employer's perspective. You need to find who you're looking for and how you're going to find that person. So if you don't understand the market rates, well, then you're essentially blindfolded yeah. and just trying to pin the tail on the donkey. Yeah, and all you got to do is look on Seek and, and maybe – throw some feelers out there to your network and just try and get an understanding of what some of your competitors are paying uh, and, and the other add-ons as well, not just the base. You know, there's other things there that you can do. So, um, yeah, just keeping abreast of that I think is a great idea. Yeah, exactly. And um, I suppose the other opportunity that kind of leads into that with the challenges and everything um, that the parts department has is there's still a lot of companies that don't invest the training into it. Um, they just kind of put people on the front desk and go, well, answer some phones and you'll be right. 
some dealers starting to do it really well, you know, the full OEM training, let's go over uh, off to head office and you're going to learn this new product for a whole week. Yeah. Um, and I think people really appreciate that. And that's any department, but particularly parts because it is quite rare. Um, I don't think it's that rare for a service department to go and do it because it's, you know, pretty obvious. Yes. Whereas for a parts department to go and do it, I think it, it really does solidify in people's minds that, you know what, this employer's good, they care, yeah. um, they appreciate the parts department. It doesn't even need to be specifically for parts training. No. You know, it might be some other like phone phone work if you're, you know, struggling on the phones. You know, that can be another area that, you know, you could offer. Yeah, or, or get your account manager for the DMS that you use to come in and, and you know, say, well, are you using this to, your, to the full potential? Mm-hmm. You know, what else? can you gain from this? Um, Cause I, I, yeah, I think DMSs are another kind of contentious point with the parts department um, or another challenge I should say with the parts department is, you know, not a day goes by where I ask people, you know, what dealers, what DMSs have you worked with? And they'll say, Oh, you know, I've worked with this one, but oh, it sucks for this. And I've worked with this one, but it's, you know, it's shocking. It's, you know, non-existent at this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's training people up on it, making sure that they understand the full capabilities of them. Because if they're in the market, they're obviously doing something right. So, yeah, um, yeah making sure all your staff are trained up on the products, on uh, on the DMS, yeah, all the systems that you use, and making sure that they're confident and, and happy about, you know, what they're able to do to do at work. And I think as well, one thing to remember with training as well, and training and development is is sit down with your employees and find out what they want. You know, what what is their end goal. So and help them get there because you know if you can give them that they they feel more uh, invested in the business as well and and I think that's uh, always something to to keep in mind when you're uh, looking at your training and development. Yeah, exactly, and that's obviously without even having to say it, it's it's way bigger than just the parts department. That just goes for everything. Yeah, um, of course. Sitting down with your your employees and, and finding out you know what is their why because um, <laughs> if you don't, then you know the next time they apply for a job, someone will ask that question. Yeah. And, definitely you know, endeavour to answer it for them. Well, I think that's uh, that's everything for this topic. So um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we'll, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, we'll uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Adding Fuel to the Hire. If you have any questions or you'd like to hear us talk about a particular topic, why not send us an email at podcast at addingfueltothehire.com. If you like what we do and would like to support our podcast, please leave a review on your podcasting app of choice. For further information, please visit our website, addingfueltothehire.com.